0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, November 2nd. Is there a Democratic and Republican way to fight poverty? Now on the campaign trail you ever hardly you hardly ever hear the p word right they talk about middle class working class often the phrase working people neither party leans into fighting poverty very much and yet maybe the biggest silver lining of the pandemic has been the child poverty actually declined by about half because of the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit, and other pandemic income supports that the federal government established temporarily. Longer term, the poverty rate in the U.S. had risen to around 15% during the Great Recession of a decade ago, gradually came down to around 12% by 2019, and then down to around 8% at the height of the pandemic. And even longer term than that, according to my guest, poverty expert Christopher Howard, Howard, who'll be on in a second, child poverty in the U.S. was around 25%, one child out of every four, back in 1993, and has been coming down generally over these past 30 years. But why? Is it from Democratic, Republican, or bipartisan policies? And why does there continue to be such a disparate impact of poverty by race? Moreover, why does the United States, one of the richest countries in the history of the world, have persistent poverty at all when we're also seeing the number of billionaires go up? With us now is Christopher Howard, government and public policy professor at the College of William & Mary in Virginia, author of a new book called Who Cares? The Social Safety Net in America. Back in 2008, he also wrote the book The Welfare State Nobody Knows, Debunking Myths About U.S. Social Policy. And some of you may have seen he had a Washington Post op-ed just last week called Democrats Aren't Saying Much About Reducing Poverty and Unemployment. Why? Professor Howard, thanks for joining us. Welcome to WNYC.
2: Thanks. Good morning.
1: And before we talk... I want to take you and everybody on an audio journey through almost 60 years of Presidents and one Speaker of the House talking about poverty. This is President Lyndon Johnson in his State of the Union Address in 1964. And this administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. So LBJ in the 60s, here's President Ronald Reagan in the 80s. My friends, some years ago, the federal government declared war on poverty, and poverty won. Today, the federal government has 59 major welfare programs and spends more than $100 billion a year on them. What has all this money done? Well, too often, it has only made poverty harder to escape. Federal welfare programs have created a massive social problem. Reagan in the 80s and Bill Clinton in the 90s. For so long, government has failed us, and one of its worst failures has been welfare. I have a plan to end welfare as we know it, to break the cycle of welfare dependency. We'll provide education, job training, and child care. But then those who are able must go to work must go to work that was clinton in the 90s here is president obama in 2014.
3: hi everybody everything we've done over the past six years has been in pursuit of one overarching goal creating opportunity for all what we've long understood though is that some communities have consistently had the odds stacked against them that's true of rural communities with chronic poverty It's true of some manufacturing communities that suffered after the plants they depended on closed their doors. It's true of some suburbs and inner cities where jobs can be hard to find and harder to get to. And that sense of unfairness and powerlessness has helped to fuel the kind of unrest that we've seen in places like Baltimore and Ferguson and New York. It has many causes, from a basic lack of opportunity to groups feeling unfairly targeted by police which means there's no single solution.
1: President Obama in 2014, mentioning many communities that have suffered from poverty, the solutions are complex, and that some communities consistently have had the odds stacked against them. Pretty different from former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, who also addressed poverty in 2014. This is from Newsmax, and argued that Republicans have had a better way to fight it. This is the 50th anniversary of Lyndon Johnson's State of the Union declaring the War on Poverty. It's also the 50th anniversary in October of Ronald Reagan's first great national speech, A Time for Choosing, in which he outlined almost exactly the opposite philosophy. And we now have a 50-year track record. When we have followed principles of hard work, low taxes, uh, limited regulation, encouraging small business, encouraging people to learn and to get a job, Uh, It's worked dramatically. So there, folks, is a little history tour of Democrats and Republicans in powerful positions on poverty. Our guest again is College of William and Mary Public Policy Professor Christopher Howard, author of the new book, Who Cares? The Social Safety Net in America. And so, Professor, can we make our way through some of the ebb and flow of U.S. poverty policy and work our way to the present through those clips So like when LBJ declared war on poverty in 1964, which so many of our listeners right now are not even alive for, which Americans was he mostly keying on, and what did the war on poverty actually consist of?
2: So when he was talking about poverty in the early 1960s, the common way about thinking about that was that it was largely... localized in Appalachia. It was white folks in Kentucky, West Virginia. Um, But there was at that time a sort of growing uh, recognition that poverty was in fact all over the place. Um, And some of this was due to the work of Michael Harrington. Um, And if you read the rest of that war on poverty speech, you'll see a remarkably long list of initiatives that he's suggesting to tackle poverty not only things that we might think of as being sort of targeted at the poor but he also loops in medicare as being part of his war on poverty Um, changes to education changes to transportation even tax cuts so he's got a very broad laundry list there and for people who subsequently debate whether or not we won or lost the war on poverty A lot of that hinges on whether they take a fairly narrow or fairly wide view about the war on poverty and what it really involved. So the Reagan clip from the
1: 80s that the U.S. declared war on poverty and poverty won, in brief, what narrow view would you argue that he was taking and in what ways was he right or wrong?
2: So I think in particular, he was focusing on the cash welfare program at that time, which was called AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children. Um, And from the sort of early 1960s to the early 1980s, there was a substantial increase in the number of people who were on that cash welfare program. Um, And so one of the things that he did in his very first budget is that he pushed for cuts in eligibility for AFDC. Um, He also pushed for some cuts in programs like um, Medicaid and food stamps um, as a way of cutting back in particular on the sort of targeted programs uh, aimed at low-income people. He really didn't do very much at all to programs like Medicare and Social Security, which either were created in the 1960s or significantly expanded in the 1960s, and both of which have had major positive effects on reducing hardship in this country.
1: And those are both um, targeted at older people, uh, whereas Medicaid can be targeted at poor people of any age and very much including children. So what happened to poverty under Ronald Reagan when he made those cuts?
2: So... The poverty rate really since the 1970s up until just before the pandemic, has basically just sort of bounced around a fairly narrow range from about 11% to 15%. Um, and it's gone up some in recessions, um, it's come down some when the economy's in good shape. Um, but the changes that he, he, Reagan made in the early 1980s didn't have a huge impact either on poverty, and they didn't have a huge impact on the welfare rolls either
1: would that be an argument almost in support of his position that all the money that was spent after LBJ in the war on poverty um, didn't do much?
2: Well, that's certainly when when Republicans took control of Congress in the 1990s under Gingrich there, they very much circled back to that argument there. Um, And sort of put sort of the combination of lots and lots of government spending with the fact that poverty wasn't going uh, either up or down much at all. If you look, at, though, at the poverty spending numbers that they used, a very, very small piece of that was the sort of classic welfare spending, AFDC. A lot of that spending was on Medicaid. Um, and, you didn't really hear Republicans at that time sort of talking about how there had been improvements in infant mortality, maternal mortality, infant health, um, because Medicaid had been expanded, particularly in the 1980s, to cover more women and children.
1: Professor, how racially disparate are poverty, ra- poverty rates today compared to when LBJ declared war on poverty in 1964?
2: some of the data don't go back quite all that way, particularly when you're dealing with uh, Hispanics or Latinos. But the general rule of thumb since the 1960s has been that Black and Hispanic poverty rates have generally been somewhere between two to three times uh, as high as for non-Hispanic whites. Um, It's that, that margin has come down some in the last few years, but the rates are still substantially higher for blacks and Hispanics. And you can look at other measures of hardship like food insecurity and housing cost burdens, and you'll find the same story where there's a real racial inequalities in all of those.
1: How do you measure poverty um, as a function of income? Uh, because I know in your Washington Post op-ed, you talk about one way that the government measures it being kind of inadequate, and now a better way that the government measures it, but also it's different from place to place, depending on the cost of living. So what is the federal poverty level, and how do we determine a true poverty level, uh, even if we're not looking at quality of life measures other than income, for people in different places?
2: Good question. So the The traditional official poverty line, we've had that since the early to mid-1960s. And even at that time, the people who were coming up with it knew that it was crude in some ways and it was it was just a sort of a decent ballpark estimate and one of the ways it falls short is in the sort of geographic differences. So in the official line I think there may be some adjustments for Alaska and Hawaii but the continental 48 states are treated pretty much the same. Now, for the last decade or so, the Census Bureau has created what's called a supplemental poverty measure. One of the ways that it is an improvement is that it takes into account better the taxes that people are paying or the tax refunds they're getting. It takes into account some of the benefits like um, food stamps and housing benefits, and it makes some more adjustments for cost of living. But even so, you can look at other organizations like the United Way has their measure called ALICE. Uh, I think it's Asset Limited, Income Constrained and Employed, trying to get a sense at the people in particular who are working poor. And those numbers for sort of what it takes to afford a decent standard of living, not luxurious, just decent, vary remarkably around the country much more than the official government numbers.
1: Let's take another call. Meeks in Brooklyn. You're on WNYC. Hello, Meeks.
0: Hello.
1: I hi. see you I hi can there. Hear me? I see, yeah, I can I see you told our screener you just voted.
0: Yeah, I did um for the midterms, uh early voting, and I noticed that uh uh something about the working families party, which it's not something new, but uh but I was also listening to what you were you guys were saying and it it helped me understand what I, I wanted to say, which is All of these are measurements. All of these measurements, we're trying to add, like, more ways to measure poverty and different ways to figure out who needs what. But either way, all our measurements are always going to fall short, just like the census always falls short in, like, misrepresenting different areas.
2: And I also
0: think that race uh, definitely affects the job market and other things like disability, Um, the job market and income. But at the same time, in a way, these these are sort of like value judgments, because um, there's, for instance, someone who has certain circumstances that can't be measured on paper, not involving race, disability, or anything like that, who's not making money, might just be written off as someone who's just unemployed for no reason, kind of like the uh, the Republican Party has been thinking of, un- of impoverished people, that they could have been working with money. Uh, working and earning money under the table because they had to for some reason. And we can't measure all of that. So I think we need to figure out a different way to consider who gets what and how we help each person because their circumstances on paper are never, no matter how many categories we add, it's never going uh, to capture the 100%. whole picture.
1: Yeah. Meeks, thank you. Professor, what are you thinking listening to Meeks?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, part of the almost inherent Nature of government programs is that they treat people as categories, um, and they do that to some extent to make lives simpler um, in terms of figuring out who's eligible and how much they should get, but also in in some ways because of procedural fairness. And you know, in in the early parts of the 20th century, there was a lot of concern about patronage politics and people who were getting relief because of who they knew, not what sort of needs they had. And so government programs are designed in part To treat people like they're in the same position. And as the caller mentioned, people aren't always in the same position, even if on paper they look like that. Um, And that's where people who sort of advocate for nonprofits and charities say, that's where we come in. We tend to deal with people more as individuals. We don't have nearly the resources of government. So we're not a substitute for government, but sometimes we're able better able to deal with people individually who may have multiple issues, whereas government tends to sort of figure out what kinds of categories they're in so that they don't get uh, accused of favoring some people over others.
1: Meeks, thank you for your call. Call us again. So now we come to the present, Professor, and these midterm elections. Your Washington Post op-ed is called, Democrats Aren't Saying Much About Reducing Poverty and Unemployment. Why? So in your opinion, do Democrats have something to crow about here in the midterms?
2: Well, I think they do, that there have been, as you mentioned at the outset, there were um, some declines in poverty during the pandemic, which is just remarkable to have any decline, given how brutal and how long the pandemic was and how many people were kicked out of their jobs or had to work on reduced paychecks there. There's a lot of good things that happen to keep people from falling deep into poverty. And then the longer run story is about child poverty. Based on that supplemental poverty measure, the better one that the Census Bureau uses, uses it does look like over the last 30 years, with programs like social security, the earned income tax credit, um, low income housing, food stamps. um, We've made a significant dent in the problem of child poverty in this country. Um, Some of those programs like social security are ones that I think Republicans would celebrate. You can find Republicans um, in the past, including Ronald Reagan pushing for the Earned Income Tax Credit. But those are also programs that the Democrats tend to support, and they're also the ones much more likely to support programs like uh, housing assistance and food stamps.
1: Christopher Howard, government and public policy professor at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. He's the author of a new book called Who Cares? The Social Safety Net in America. And he had a Washington Post op ed last week called Democrats Aren't Saying Much About Reducing Poverty and Unemployment. Why? Professor Howard, we really appreciate all the context you've given us. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Brian.
1: Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio. 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.